Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome, welcome to the Didactic Mind Podcast. This is episode 91, The Year of Reckoning. I am Didact, and I wish all of you a very, very happy New Year, a very happy entry into 2022. Uh, let us hope, uh, let me just adjust the volume down here. Yeah, that's uh, that looks a bit more reasonable. Uh, yeah, let us hope that this year is... Uh, less of a disaster than the previous one was and I hope that um, wherever you are your New Year's Eve was uh, a little bit more enjoyable than mine. Uh, I, You may be able to tell from my voice I'm not 100% and uh, haven't been for a few days. Um, I seem to have caught what appears to be a mild cold but you never know these days it, it could very easily be the moronic strain of the Kung Flu who knows? Um, but I, I'm actually feeling a lot better now. I mean, I slept for nine hours last night. I, I didn't even stay awake until midnight. <laughs> I was just so out of it. And um, then I went to sleep uh, this afternoon and just crashed on my couch and passed out for a couple of hours. And I feel a lot better now. So I figured um, since I do a podcast every New Year's Day uh, anyway, I should get my butt motivated and um, <clears throat> move on to to actually doing a podcast today as well uh, before I go out and kind of get some fresh air and, and, and stretch my legs, which believe me, I need to do because uh, I, I suffer pretty bad DOMS, delayed onset muscle um, soreness, after every leg day. And for me, leg days tend to be Thursdays. So when I'm in the gym doing squats and deadlifts and I do heavy squats and heavy deadlifts and I do a lot of sets of, of everything, um, the first day is like tolerable after that. The first day is kind of sort of okay, but the second day, oh good heavens, it's just miserable. Uh, it's just awful. I mean, I can barely move. Uh, especially if I'm coming off of a week's rest or two weeks rest, which I was this time. So I'd actually taken a week off from the gym. So, uh, but I mean, once I go out for a walk, uh, once I go out and, and explore a little bit and kind of stretch my legs a little bit, I tend to feel a lot better. It takes about an hour or so of walking every day just to kind of get the blood flowing to the point where things don't hurt quite so badly. Um, now, in terms of the New Year's message, well, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, I hope that all of you have been safe and healthy. And as always, uh, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to this podcast. I know it's uh, it's an hour of, of just listening to one guy ramble on and on, which uh, can be interesting, I'm sure. But I suspect uh, for many people it's just like, okay, why are we bothering with this? But you guys clearly have the patience to do it. So I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. And I really want to say thank you uh, to all of you who listen in, all of you who write and comment on the site, everyone who gets involved in this kind of community that I have uh, tried to build online pretty much single-handedly. I mean, um, not entirely. I mean, there have definitely been collaborators and, and helpers during this time. Uh, shout out to the male brain, of course. He's a good friend and he does a lot of work to, uh, help sustain things behind the scenes in terms of sending in material 
and helping out with uh, with interesting tidbits that I add into the site. Uh, for the most part, it's really just me. I'm the one who writes all the materials. I'm the one who, most of it, I'm the one who, who puts it out there, and I'm the one who does these podcasts. And uh, I have to say, it's been going on for a long time. Uh, before I... Uh, before moving on to the main body of the podcast, uh, I, I do need to do a rundown of the site statistics because I do that every year. I believe in being open and transparent about what I do with the site itself, at least. While I maintain anonymity to some degree or another, I do believe in pointing out where things have gone right and where things have gone wrong. So, in terms of the site's traffic, uh, if you count the WordPress page views, and you count the blogger page views, the total this year came, or the total in 21, came to 270,000 page views total across all of the uh, platforms. The The blogger site is still active, but obviously it just has an active redirect um, to the WordPress site. So that's why it still shows up in search engines. It still shows up in, in different places. And anytime somebody lands on the old blogger page, um, where the URLs haven't been updated in, in various people's archives, then inevitably they just get redirected to the WordPress site. But the, the page view hits the blogger statistic rather than the WordPress statistic. Now, if you compare that with uh, 2020's page views, I think 2020 was 540,000, something like that. Uh, there's a post called First and Foremost from January of 2021, January 1st, 2021, in fact, because Jan 1st, 2021 was a Friday, so it was a Friday TNA post called uh, First and Foremost. And in that post, you can see the statistics for 2020. Compared to 2021, the page views for 21 dropped by about half compared to 2020, which is weird. I'm not sure why, um, but I suspect it had to do with the fact that there were a hell of a lot more posts published in 2020 than there were in 2021. In 2020, there were 451 posts published, according to WordPress, uh, which I find a little strange. I don't Maybe I did publish that many, actually, because I didn't have a whole lot to do quite a lot of the time. So I was publishing practically every day um, on many things. And uh, in 2021, because I got quite busy with a lot of things, uh, I only published 332 posts. So inevitably, there was a considerable drop-off in terms of page views. And yet, we managed a lot more visitors. So in 2020, there were about 10,000 or so unique visitors. In 21, there were 37,400 unique visitors. In 2020, there were about 4.92 views per visitor. But in 2021, there were 3.81 views per visitor. So the interesting thing is there were a lot more visitors, but they viewed things uh, a lot less in uh, overall so they didn't take as many page views as as expected uh but it's really interesting if you look at a map of where all of my uh visitors come from uh i've got i think i'll i'll take a graphic of this i'll take a screenshot and upload it um, at least on the website 
you can see my audience is amazingly global. I mean, almost every country on earth, except for some parts of the Middle East and Africa, uh, view my content. Uh, I have, I have had page views from places like Iran. And actually, Iran isn't listed. It's not, it doesn't have a stat here. Uh, I get views from Saudi Arabia. 48 views from Saudi Arabia in 21. 12 from Iraq. 5 from Syria. 78 from Turkey. Um, 2000 some from India. 67 from Pakistan. 195 from China. Well, this is, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, I got quite a lot from Australia, about 12,000 from, from the Aussies, about 1,800 from the Kiwis, uh, 7,000 from the Canucks. The canoe heads do seem to like some of my content. I'll give them that much. Uh, 34 from Iceland, 6,000 from the Limeys. Uh, the Pommy Bastards do like what I, what I like, uh, what I write, apparently. 700 or so, 600, 900, no, sorry, 968 from Portugal. Um, 197 from Spain. I wonder what what's up with that. About a thousand from Portugal and only about 200 from Spain. Uh, yeah, I got quite a few from the frogs. 842, uh, 2,000 almost from the Germans. So the Krauts like what I write. Um, 412 from the ITs. This is it's amazing what you can discover with uh, WordPress statistics. That's for damn sure. Uh, let's see what else have I got. Quite a few from Eastern Europe, uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, Poland, a thousand views. Ukraine, 156. Romania, 136. Bulgaria, 181. Greece, 130. Brazil, 298. Russia, 298. Same, same as between those two countries. Argentina, 69. Bolivia, two views. Oh, who cares? Mexico, 226. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Like Indonesia, 179. South Africa, 935. I got a, I even managed one view from Madagascar. I don't know how that happened. Um, Japan, 417. So you can see, and I'll, I'll put this map up somewhere. And, uh, of course, uh, let me not forget my American readers, which is the bulk of my readership. 93,000 views from, from the Americans, uh, for the entire year. So you can see my audience is very global. I mean, Almost every country comes to this site at some point or another, but there are obviously some concentrations uh, of people where, or, or some some concentrations of viewership in specifically uh, North America, uh, the United Kingdom, <coughs> Australia, New Zealand. <coughs> like I said, please excuse me if my voice is is, is hoarse. As I said, uh, I do have a bit of a cold, so. Forgive me if I sound a little odd. Um, it's unavoidable. I, I should be better in a couple of days, but for the moment, you're, you're stuck with me sounding like somebody who smokes too much, um, <clears throat> trying to give an exposition on matters probably outside of his competence, which uh, really probably defines my entire shtick. But that, I want to make it clear, those statistics were only possible because of you. You listening, you reading, this is why this site has been able to stay up for as long as it has. And it's been around for a long, long time. This is the ninth year running of first Didact's Reach, which is the old blogger site. 
and now didactic mind. I never expected to run things for this long. I never expected to be writing and commenting and producing content for nine years. But today is the ninth anniversary of this site, of my involvement in whatever you want to call it, the manosphere, the hard right, the neo-reactionary world, the whatever. You know, this is this is something of a momentous occasion. Uh, nine years is an extremely long time for any website to be up. Most websites are done and dusted within a few months. Um, most blogs don't last more than three months because people run out of interesting things to say. People run out of, um, of ideas. A lot of people just start a blog thinking, oh, it's easy to write. I'll just write whatever's on my mind. I'll just put it out there and, and that's fine. It'll be easy. <coughs> most people do not realize just how hard it is to write. It is genuinely difficult. It is really hard to put your thoughts down on paper and make them interesting. Um, people aren't interested, as a general rule, in gamma navel-gazing. It's not useful for most people. Uh, for whatever reason, I have been able to find the time, the ability, and the discipline to sit down and write. And the discipline part is critical. If you don't have discipline, you're not going to be able to write regularly. And the longer you don't write, the harder it is to get back into the habit of writing. I can tell you from gaps that I experienced in my writing this year where I had to just stop. I, like I had to skip a day or I skipped two days. Coming back after that on the third or fourth or even fifth day of not writing, was really hard. I mean, there were days when I would just put together the Monday compilation, the great Monday DAC browser smashers, and I'd be wiped out from that. I'd be like, I don't want to write anymore on Tuesday. And then Tuesday would be done. Wednesday would come along and be like, uh, I don't really feel like writing today either. I'll just write tomorrow. I'll write two or three articles tomorrow on Thursday. Well, the problem is that when you back, when you let things back up that far, each article takes like an hour or more to write. It's it's hard work. It's genuinely hard work. And if you let it slide more and more and more, it really snowballs to the point where you get to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh shit, it's Friday and I haven't written anything for the entire week and I've got just one article in, in the pipe. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, you can't muster up the, the, the motivation to do much. This is why most websites fail. They just, the, the authors behind them lose the motivation and somehow, some way, I've managed to keep the motivation up for nine years. There aren't too many blogs or sites or anything else out there that have lasted that long. Uh, our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Day, has had his site up for 17 years. So his site is almost double the age of mine. I've been reading his work since 2008. Uh, maybe earlier, actually, 2007, potentially. Uh, no, eight, seven, I, I forget exactly. I think it's 2008. And five years later, I started up my own site. That's 
the kind of website that that lasts and lasts and lasts, where the the authors kind of show their evolution over time, and you see them beginning in one way of thought and one way of of, of uh, philosophy, and then they move on to do something else. They they evolve into different people, and that's that I think is the key to a long-lasting site where you have a niche and you have a voice, but you let that voice grow organically. So if you're out there, you're thinking of starting up a site or a blog, uh, first get in touch with me. I can explain how to do it in a way that is robust against the the thought police. I don't recommend using Blogger and I don't recommend using WordPress.com. Don't use WordPress.com, which is the free WordPress site. Get yourself a self-hosted site uh, get yourself a domain name, get yourself shared WordPress hosting, and put your site up on <clears throat> on its own platform so that you can monetize it, you can control it, you can do what you want with it. Other people don't get to tell you how to use your own property. That's the ideal place to be. That's where I am now. The Didactic Mind website is robust and secure on its own platform. It's backed up. It's it's self-contained. It doesn't rely on outside sources of funding. It just relies on me. Uh, and that's the way it's going to stay. So most importantly, though, again, I can't thank you enough, you the reader, you the listener, for keeping me motivated, for keeping me engaged, interested, wanting to do this. Because if I know I've, I've written and said this so many times over the years, I don't write and I don't podcast and I don't do any of this stuff for anybody other than myself. That's the truth. I don't do it to show people how wonderful I am because I'm not. I don't do it to show off because there's nothing to show off. I just do it because it makes me happy. But I will be the first to admit that having people get value from what I write really makes me happy. And you guys are the reason why I get value, right? I have had people write into me, you know, talking to me about how they've been through divorces or losses of loved ones or job losses, sometimes all three, um, you know, multiple losses. They, they lost, there's one guy who wrote in on a, on an Agogi article, <coughs> um, last year. And he basically said, I've suffered the loss of, I've suffered the, the destruction of a 20 year old marriage. Uh, I was homeless for a while. I lost a very dear loved one from COVID or with COVID. Um, I'm struggling to, to find motivation, struggling to, uh, to, to, to move on from these losses. And your article helped me do that. You don't get better feedback than that. I mean, that's the reason to keep fighting. That's the reason to keep moving forward. That's the reason why I keep writing the Agogi articles, because there is a, a huge audience out there of men who are broken and sickened and wearied by what they see, and they have no, no voice telling them, this is the way it's going to be, and this is how you can move on from it. The problem that we have on the right, particularly the hard right, the Christian right, is that we are very much individualists. And my good friend Adam Piggott wrote up a piece just the other day, uh, a couple of days ago, 
<clears throat> about how 2022 is probably the year of the individual. And I think he's right. We have become too individualized and we have failed to build our own communities. Well, this right here, didactic mind, this is a community. It is a community of like-minded men who can see where the world is heading. We don't like it and we want to do something about it. We're mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore, as Howard Beale says in uh, Network. <clears throat> we are mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore. But unlike in Network, which ends very cynically, we don't believe it's going to end that way. We have faith and hope and love on our side. And we're going to use those things to glorify the Creator who gave us life. That's our job. That's what we're here to do. That's why Didactic Mind is here. That's what it's going to continue to do every single day for the rest of its existence, for the rest of my existence. That's what it's here for. Don't ever think otherwise because that is the purpose of this site. That is the reason why I exist. Well, the reason why I exist apparently is to show everyone else what not to do. But that's fine. I'm good with that. All right. As long as what I'm doing glorifies God in the name of Jesus Christ, that's fine with me. Right. And that's what didactic mind will continue to do. That's what the podcast will continue to do from now until this all comes to a crashing halt somehow. So with that in mind, I wanted to point out what we can look forward to in 2022. And I call it the year of reckoning for a number of reasons. To my mind, there are three things that will happen this year, uh, which will define many of our activities for the coming years ahead. There are three areas that we will see in my view, I predict we will see significant changes. The first of these is the great heresy, Islam. Most of us didn't really realize this based on um, all the craziness of 2021 with the coup and the, the economic disruptions and the lockdowns and the stupidity and the idiotic government responses, the incompetence, the venality, the corruption that we all saw. But underneath all of that, there was a quiet revolution taking place in the Islamic world. And so much new material came to light in 2021 about the origins of Islam and the inconsistencies of Islam and the problems of Islam that the Islamic world right now is actually in the middle of a very serious crisis. That's not my opinion. That's not my gut feeling. That's what Muslim dawagandists themselves are saying. So I want to unpack that a little bit. The second area related is atheism. The world is turning decisively back towards faith, towards God, towards family, towards hope. The materialism, the blind secularism, the consumerism that defined the last 30 or so years is dying. And that's a very good thing. And a number of atheists are beginning to realize that this isn't their their worldview isn't going to work and they need something else some something that moves beyond 
the nihilistic despair of atheism. The third thing <clears throat> that I think we're going to see come to a head in 22 is the complete destruction of government credibility and uh, power structures. And this is where things are going to get really hot really fast and really scary really fast. So in the 35 minutes or so that I have remaining, uh, I'll try to unpack all three things. I might run a little over, we'll see. So, Islam. First, let's take a look at what's happening with Islam. In 21, uh, if you look at J, Dr. J. Smith's uh, channel, Fander Films on YouTube, or Al-Fadi's Sira International, or uh, Sneakers Corner, or Islam Critiqued, or Islamic Clarity, or a whole bunch of other channels, Christian Prince, uh, Rob Christian, all of these guys, uh, Act 17 Apologetics, which is the biggest uh, Christian apologetics channel on YouTube, David Wood, uh, Dr. David Wood, the diagnosed psychopath Dr. David Wood, has an audience of 631,000 subscribers and counting. And, you know, he just, he keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And YouTube keeps trying to demonetize and deplatform him. And he just, it, nothing seems to stop him because he is so capable and, and so good at just destroying their attempts to, to, to wipe him out. Uh, but, these channels have done a tremendous amount to expose the corruption, the lies, the trickery of Islam. And there are people out there who will say, well, you can't, why are you attacking Islam? Why is it that you are criticizing the historical foundations, the scriptural foundations? That's not fair. Well, excuse me, if you're going to attack my man, Jesus Christ, if you're going to attack my book, the Bible, if you're going to attack my place, Jerusalem, and all of the various other places associated with Christianity, why are you suddenly immune to criticism? Why is Islam's man, Muhammad, why is Islam's book, the Quran, why is Islam's place, Mecca, immune to criticism? That's ridiculous. They should be held to the same standards we are. And it's not just Islam that deserves that criticism. It's every other religion, every other worldview. Hinduism, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the Vedas, all of their sacred scriptures should be held to the same standard that the Bible is, which means that they should all be subjected to redacted criticism, textual criticism, source criticism, historical criticism. If those books can't validate or back up the historical uh, claims that they make, they should be discarded. And if you do, if you conduct this examination of every other worldview in the same way that we Christians have been forced to do with the Bible for the last 200 years, <coughs> ever since the uh, Tübingen School in Germany really started attacking the Bible for uh, its historicity and its uh, on the basis of the actual text, if you can do that to the Bible and the Bible can pass every single test, which it has done, then why shouldn't we be allowed to do the same to others? And that's exactly what has happened with Islam over the last couple of years. Um, 21 was really genuinely fascinating because it decisively shattered the myth of Islamic uh, theology, doctrine, history, everything. What has become very clear is that the entire Islamic storyline of how it started and how it spread is garbage. Every single aspect of it is garbage. 
There never was a prophet named Muhammad. He is not a real historical figure. He is a composite invented later and kind of superimposed or retconned into history. Uh, and he is a composite of multiple biblical figures and historical figures. There never were four rightly guided caliphs that existed between the death of Muhammad in 632, the supposed death in 632, and the establishment of the Umayyad dynasty in 661. Didn't happen. There is no evidence on the ground whatsoever that any of that happened. Uh, <clears throat> there never was a, uh, a book written in Arabic called the Quran, transmitted from the angel Jibreel or Gabriel down to Muhammad, and then disseminated throughout the Islamic world in the fashion described in the Islamic traditions. It did not happen. There is no Quran that dates back to 652 AD, which is the Uthmanic recension. It doesn't, it, it doesn't exist. What we have today is a messed up text, which was very clearly kind of stitched together from fragments uh, of various other texts to support a pan-Arab identity coming out of the power vacuum that resulted from the Byzantine-Sassanian Wars, uh, which ended in basically 622 AD. And from 622 to 661, the Arab identity unfolded, and that is how you get Islam. What, what we today call Islam is nothing more than a Christian heresy. And it's, that's actually a pretty profound statement. Because if you go back in time and look at what was going on in the region at the time, the Christianity in operation in the Arabian Peninsula was not the Trinitarian, uh, Niceno-Constantinian Christianity that we have today. It was a heretical, Gnostic, uh, monophysite, and um, non-Trinitarian, decidedly anti-Trinitarian view of Christianity. What do I mean by anti-Trinitarian? Well, this was a view of Christianity that said, that had a very low view of Christology. What that means is the Arab Christians at the time, the Lachmids and the Ghassanids, uh, basically viewed Jesus as a very mighty man, a great man, a prophet, the greatest prophet who ever lived, but a man nonetheless, a mortal man, not the son of God, not the begotten son who became, who went through an incarnation and, you know, was born into this world of the flesh and dwelt among us. That didn't happen according to their worldview. Once you understand that this is what Islam began as, and once you start exposing on the other side all of the problems with Islam's scriptures, which are so hopelessly contradictory and so abominably badly written, you realize that Islam has nothing to support it. And the crisis of apostasy in Islam is reaching critical mass. Very quietly, underneath the surface, you're not hearing about it from Western sources, you're not seeing it in the Western news media, but it's there. There's a fantastic video up on David Wood's channel, Dr. David Wood's channel, Act 17 Apologetics, uh, which I will, I will link to in the description box. It's, fan it's fabulous. It, it's brilliant to watch. It's about uh, t 10 minutes long or so. It was recorded only in the last 48 hours. And in it, he basically talks about the crisis of apostasy facing uh, Muslims worldwide, particularly in the West, but even in hardcore Islamic countries. These are not openly apostate Muslims. 
they're not coming out there and saying, I don't believe in Allah or Muhammad or the Quran or whatever. They're saying, they're, they're, they're carrying on their daily lives as Muslims, but in their hearts, they don't believe anymore. They don't believe. This is reaching critical proportions within their world, and it's scaring the crap out of their imams. Um, there are hundreds and hundreds of apostate Muslims admitting quietly to their imams in the mosques, I don't believe, but I will carry on living an Islamic life. Why? Because Islam has anti-apostasy and anti-blasphemy laws that are enforceable through the penalty of death. And any honest Muslim, and there are honest Muslims out there, honest Muslim who knows what his law, what his, the, the laws of his religion require, will tell you that if it were not for the anti-blasphemy and anti-apostasy laws, then there would be no Islam. It wouldn't exist. That is the degree to which Islam faces a crisis. Even in hardcore Islamic nations like Saudi Arabia, like Iran, like Indonesia, which wasn't all that hardcore until fairly recently, actually, um, even in Turkey or the UAE or uh, other areas of the Middle East, scores and scores of Muslim youths every single day are turning away from Islam. They're rejecting it. Now, that, does, that is not to say that Islam is a spent force. It is not. Uh, crazy ideologies become ever more dangerous when they're pushed to the wall. When they have nowhere else to turn, when they're, when they're collapsing from within, that's when they become the most dangerous because they're facing extinction. And that's what we're going to see with Islam. They're going to become ever more desperate, ever more vile, ever more disgusting, ever more crazy. Um, and they will <clears throat> use all of their deceit and their, uh, their, their secretive ways of, uh, kind of seducing people into their lies to try to capture as many minds as possible. But it's not going to work because what they're realizing is that roughly speaking of every hundred or so converts that they get, and this is a statistic I, I remember seeing floating around somewhere. Uh, it was probably on David Wood's channel as well. Out of every hundred or so people that they convert, roughly 50 will leave Islam within six months because they realize just how stupid the entire thing is. Uh, in this respect, the internet has been the greatest gift that God could possibly have given us because it brings, it gives us a way to get this information out to people in ways that just didn't exist before. Today, Islamic youth can look at their Quran, they can look at their traditions, they can look at their prophet, and they can say, this doesn't make sense. This, this doesn't match what my imam is telling me. Well, we Christians have had that ability for 400 years. We've had the Bible in our hands, thanks to the translation from uh, Latin into German, from German into English, and the existence of the printing press. Anyone who wants a Bible can go and buy a Bible. Anyone who wants to read the Word of God can read it. And we can see whether what the priest or the, the, the bishop or the archbishop or the chief beardy high todger in the church preaches what is in the text. And because of that, we've been able as the laity to hold the, the religious authorities to account for what the text actually says. We have had that ability for hundreds of years. Islam is only now getting it. And they're suffering from a tremendous crisis because of it. This is great news for us, my brothers, because 
It means that they have an opportunity to come home to the true God, to the true man, to the true faith. They can come home to Yahweh, the one who is. They can come home to the Son, Jesus Christ. They can come home to the church of God. This is wonderful news. But at the same time, we also have to contend with the second uh, issue in 2022. And I think in 22, we're going to see a lot more apostasy, a lot more crisis within Islam. It's already building. I mean, we can see it. But it's going to become undeniable at some point. Uh, unfortunately, this will lead to the second major problem uh, in 22, which is atheism and the related issue of the establishment of Christian nations on earth. Um, again, if you look on David Wood's channel, there's a very good video uh, that he published just today, in fact, about the, 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 the most important apologetics book that you should read in 2022. And he was talking to some atheists in a debate that he did, after a debate that he did back in, you know, a couple of years ago at Columbia University, where the atheists, the, the young atheists he was talking to basically were utterly convinced that Christianity is evil. And I know where they're coming from because I used to think the same way. Uh, it's amazing what you will believe when you're young and stupid. Uh, trust me. <laughs> When you get a little bit older and you realize the world works uh, somewhat differently, well, yeah, what can I say? Um, older, wiser, and sadder is, is what I am today. But um, Christians need to do a better job of understanding why atheists are the way they are. A lot of them are spurgy autists in, in weaponized form. But a lot of them are just genuinely convinced that Christianity is evil. And we need to do a better job of going to them and pointing out to them that their worldview would not exist without Christianity. The reality is that atheism has no moral core whatsoever. Um, now that is, again, every time you say this to an atheist, the atheist will say, well, you're saying I have no morality. No, no, no. It's not what I'm saying at all. There are plenty of examples innumerable examples, innumerable examples of atheists who will live good and decent moral lives, upstandingly so. They are more than capable of living uh, as paragons of society. And that's good. But where does their morality come from? It doesn't come from atheism. Atheism has no moral center. It has nothing to offer. Everything that atheists believe is moral everything that they have as a moral code is rooted in Christian belief. Our moral laws come from the God of the Jews, which, who, translate, who transmitted his commandments to the Jews. The Jews were supposed to carry them to the rest of the world. They didn't. So God sent Christ to us to complete the law, to fulfill it to give the law to the entire world, to all of the Gentiles, and to unite the world back with him as part of uh, his church. Well, what does that law say? What does the law of Christ say? Because it is rooted in the Ten Commandments, in the Scriptures, in the Pentateuch. Love thy neighbor as you love thyself. You shall love the, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. These are the two greatest commandments, the second and the first, basically. 
And on top of that, well, or beneath that, flow all the Ten Commandments. There is no religion on earth that is comparable to that. Not one. Islam isn't even close. Hinduism isn't even close. Buddhism isn't even close. Nothing comes close to those commandments. Nothing. Nothing comes close to the commandment that says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. This, you know, you shall not, you shall not make graven images uh, for worship. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Honor your mother and father so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord gives you. These things don't exist in other religions. Certainly not to the same extent, if they do at all. And certainly not at the level of, I am the Lord, I told you to do this, you will do it. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. This is what we have as Christians. This is unique to us. And if you compare the Christian worldview with every other worldview out there, you're going to find when you're debating with atheists, when you're talking with them, again, I'm talking as a former atheist myself. My good friend John C911 in Australia is a former atheist. Uh, my good friend Adam Piggott is, I mean, he's a secular type who became a devout Catholic. Uh, these are people who know and understand the secular atheistic mindset, the, the worldview of secular humanism. If you compare the Christian worldview with every single other worldview out there, you're going to come to the same conclusion that Nabil Qureshi, God rest his soul, came to when he was doing the same thing. And he realized that the Christian worldview is superior to every other worldview out there in terms of its moral framework, in terms of the way it sees the world, and in terms of how it comes to a solution to the problem of evil. And not just by a little bit, but by a huge margin. This morality, this, this innate goodness, is the one weapon that atheists can't fight against. Because they don't have it. Again, atheists are not bad people. They are not at all indecent in their ways. In many ways, many atheists out there live better and more moral lives than many Christians. Because too many Christians have fallen into this awful legalistic interpretation of the scriptures. They've fallen into this trap of thinking that they need to do works rather than faith. This is exactly why Jesus came down. This is exactly why he was sent to the Jews. To stop them from interpreting everything through this legalistic lens. If you read, I mean, I was looking at um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, chapters thereof, to understand uh, why Jesus referred to the, the, the greatest and the second greatest commandments the way that he did. And I was trying to go back and I was like, why did, he, why did he say, you shall love the Lord your God with all in and so on, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Why did he pick these? Where did they come from? So I went back and I looked in Leviticus, and there it was. And if you look at the text of Leviticus, you know, so many people, so many Christians read Leviticus and they think, oh boy, this is so boring. I mean, God is just laying down the law and saying, you must do this, 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 this. They're forgetting the core of the text. The text actually tries to tell people, you will do these things not because it wins you favors or because it scores you brownie points in heaven or with the Lord your God. You will do these things because you have faith that I am the Lord your God. That's what it says. It says, you will do these things through faith in me. I mean, not me, you know, the Lord. You will do these things because the Lord your God told you to do them 
because he loves you as his creation. That's what the text in the Pentateuch is saying 1,400 years before Jesus ever came along. And that's the bit that we as Christians keep forgetting. We've, we, we have forgotten the lessons of the Reformation. We have forgotten the fact that the Protestant Revolution tried to get us back to this idea of salvation through faith. We have forgotten the reality that the Bible points us to faith in Christ. Through every single one of its pages, it points us back to faith in God and, by extension, to faith in Christ. The entirety of the Bible points to Jesus alone as the source of salvation. All of the entire book points to that. And we've forgotten that. We've become trapped into this works-based approach to religion. Whether it's the Catholic Church, whether it's the Orthodox Eastern Church, whether it's a number of Protestant denominations, we think that if we repeat these, these nice words and we mumble these nice phrases, we'll be saved. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter how much you give away of your income. It doesn't matter how many people you feed. It doesn't matter what, how nice a person you are on the outside. What matters is whether or not you as a man or a woman or a child are willing to believe that Jesus came down, took up human form, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead for you to save you personally. You could be the worst of all human beings. If, he, if you believe that he did that, something profound in you will change and you will improve and you will become better because of that faith. But until you believe that, until you actually understand that, you will never, ever understand what Christianity teaches. And that's the key message that we keep missing. And it's such a critical point that we can't explain it to atheists, which is so stupid. Like, why can't we do that? We should be able to, but we can't. This is the key that we need to, uh, we need to turn in the lock in order to reach atheists, and we need to offer them a way out of their nihilistic moral despair. They have nothing. They have nothing to offer to anyone in terms of a moral framework that doesn't already come from somewhere else. In an atheist worldview, things like murder, rape, torture, genocide, uh, slavery, these are all permissible. And atheists will be outraged at this. I know they'll be outraged when you suggest this. Again, I used to be one. They'll be absolutely outraged that you could say something like that, but when you actually force them to examine the logic of what they believe, they'll have to agree with you. They'll, they'll, they'll claim that um, atheism derives its moral code from a natural evolution of law. Well, okay, if you look at the law of nature, look at what some of the most highly evolved apex species in nature actually do. When, uh, when a lion kills off an older rival and takes his, that, that older rival's, uh, female lions for his own, to lionesses, to form his own pride from the remains of the older lion's pride, what does he do? He kills off, he slaughters the older lion's cubs. And then that allows the lionesses to go into another breeding cycle which lets him, the new guy, the new alpha, impregnate them and spawn his own family. That's a law of nature among 
the top apex predator on the food chain. So if atheists are going to claim this, well, we can point straight to an example in nature saying not only is polygamy permissible under a law of nature, but so is infanticide and so is rape. Again, I'm not saying this is a good thing. I condemn these things unequivocally. But if you're an atheist, you would be forced to conclude, if you're honest with yourself, that that's what nature's law permits. It's not me saying this. This is your worldview saying this. Another example, the cuttlefish, um, kind of closely related to this, uh, a squid. If you've never eaten cuttlefish, by the way, they're quite delicious. Um, but you have to cook them the right way. It tastes kind of like uh, even more rubbery calamari, which is saying something. Uh, but basically, if you look at the cuttlefish and you look at the cuttlefish's mating strategy, right, um, there are some cuttlefish that compete on the basis of size and strength, which is fine. That's normal. They, they seek out mates and they fight with each other and they compete with each other, compete with male cuttlefish, which are larger and stronger than their female counterparts as they should be. And based on that, they, uh, the, the, the strongest and, uh, and, and most dominant cuttlefish typically wins out, mates with the female, and ensures the continuation of his genetic line. But there is a weaker cuttlefish, uh, you know, the, the, the small little cuttlefish, the uh, male cuttlefish, the, the weaker breeds, uh, will often employ a rather odd strategy. This comes from um, Anonymous Conservatives' book, uh, The Evolutionary Psychology of Politics. It's right there in the first couple, the first chapter, I think. They will pull in their tentacles and uh, basically mimic a female cuttlefish. So that allows them to sneak in. This is like what you might call the gamma mating strategy, basically, the friend zone strategy. They will sneak in among the females, pretending to be female, and thereby, because they seem non-threatening, they seem non-masculine, basically, they will be able to sneak past the warring males and mate with the female cuttlefish. That is deception. That is uh, catfishing, if you will. If you're an atheist and you believe that your morality derives from laws of nature, is that not permissible? So we need to expose these silly ideas as Christians and we need to hammer home the superiority not, you know, in a, in a, in an arrogant or supercilious way, but in a compassionate and loving way that we have, because our moral code cannot be contradicted by definition. It comes from God. God is the source out, who sits outside of the universe, outside of his creation of a moral code that we cannot contradict. And with that, we must understand the development of Christian nations. We are desperately in need of Christian nations, of a Christian nationalism. It's already happening in Eastern Europe. Russia, in my view, is going to become the dominant Christian nation on earth. It's going to become the, the leading light of a Christian revival. It's already happening in Russia. You know, churches are being built there every single month. The Christianity is is undergoing an explosion over there, which the likes of which we haven't seen in probably 150 years in the West. There is a huge revival of Christianity going on over there and in Central Europe as well. Hungary, Poland, 
to some extent, Czech Republic and Slovakia and Slovenia, uh, definitely in the Balkans, the Christian Balkans, uh, not the, the Muslim Balkan states. But we are seeing a revival of old school Christianity. Africa, oddly enough, is undergoing a Christian revolution. Believe it or not, Christianity is spreading faster in Africa than it's spreading anywhere else. The Christian church in Africa is growing at a pace we haven't seen in, well, in centuries, if not in millennia. It's moving at an astonishing rate. And this is very, very good news for us. It means that millions and millions of people are hearing the good news, hearing the gospel, and coming back to the true faith. If this carries on, we can look forward to a revival of the faith and hopefully, after some very, very difficult and dark times uh, ahead for the next 10 to 20 years, most likely, hopefully, a decisive turning away from secularism, materialism, crass consumerism, and back towards the things that really, really matter. Faith, family, children, hope. That's what we can look forward to. But we're going to have to go through a very harsh period of struggle before we get to that point. And that brings me to the last um, of the three major megatrends that I think we're going to see this year and into the years ahead. The loss of faith in, in authority. Uh, 2020 and 2021 were harbingers of what is to come. We saw in 2020 the world basically lost its collective mind over the coup. And... In March of 2020, you know, we were all terrified of what was going to come. We were, we were afraid of what was going to happen. We didn't know how dangerous this virus was. We thought, well, we're all going to die. Um, but by April, we already had the data that said, well, the threat is overblown. Uh, we were able to get back some of our freedoms, claw them back towards the summer. But by winter, of course, all of the nations had had massive panic attacks again, shut down the borders again, shut down economic activity again. And that continued all the way through into uh, basically spring of 21. Uh, by summer, of course, things seemed to be a lot better, but then we had this, this massive push for fake vaccines, for not vaccines on the entire population, on the entire globe. Those vaccines are dangerous. I mean, I haven't been vaccinated. I refuse to be vaccinated. I think these things are incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of their efficiency and of their safety. Now, I say that as somebody who actually got the Chinese chickenpox, um, and I got a pretty bad attack of it, actually, in July. And I may well have the moronic strain right now. I don't know. But if I do have the moronic strain... I can tell you, remembering quite well what I went through six months ago, this is trivial by comparison. This is like, this is no big deal. I mean, I've been sleeping for the last two, three days, more or less, and I feel pretty good right now, except my voice and, um, and my body's feeling a little bit weak, but I'm still actually more or less okay. Uh, the reality is that those vaccines aren't effective. If they were effective, then we wouldn't need constant booster shots. In the UK, they're already talking about a fourth set of booster shots three months after the third set. The, this is exactly what people like me predicted, that there would be 
insistence on getting more and more and more booster shots. Why? Because the vaccines themselves don't support your immune system. They don't kill the virus. They are non-sterilizing vaccines. They're quite leaky. So what they do is they train your immune system to focus only on one particular disease and only on fighting that disease. And that makes them susceptible to other diseases. But when that original disease mutates a bit, the vaccines become ineffective. So you need more and more and more of those vaccine-based antibodies rather than your own body's natural antibody production to fight off disease. And we don't know what the consequences are going to be, but I am willing to wager that the consequences in the next five to ten years are going to be absolutely horrific. We're going to see a wave of heart disease, cancer deaths, um, and other, you know, strange, uh, drops in fertility and, uh, and overall health and well-being that we did not anticipate a year ago. We didn't see this coming, or at least most people didn't see it coming. People like me, who are deeply skeptical, said from the beginning, this is a really, really bad idea, and we shouldn't be pushing vaccines upon the entire population without having them fully tested first. But we were shouted down. We were told, you know, you people are all anti-scientific nutjobs. Well, no, we're not. Actually, we're the ones following the science. We're the ones looking at the data and saying, hang on a second, this doesn't make sense. You're telling us X and we see not X in the data. Why are you telling us to ignore not X? The reason we're being told to ignore not X is because people like Anthony Fauci and, uh, Rachel Walensky and what the, that, that, the, the, the jackass in charge of the WHO, what's his name? Um, uh, the one with a really long name. Gabriel Jesus, uh, Adnan, um, I can't even remember, uh, that, that guy, I mean, the guy in charge of WHO, um, the one with a really, really long name. Uh, these people with supposed scientific authority and lots of letters in front of their names are telling us that we should do what they tell us to do. Well, Here's the reality, and I probably am going to go over the one-hour mark, but so be it. Um, here's the reality. People with scientific credentials aren't actually usually all that smart. And that's the truth. If they are smart, they are smart in a very specific, narrow field of expertise. That's what doing a doctorate is all about. You gain expertise in a very narrow area. And when you become an administrative specialist like Fauci is, or Walensky is, you stop the actual practice of medicine and you only tend to read papers and journals which only tend to publish the consensus view. We aren't just seeing this with the COOF. We're seeing it in multiple other areas. The great swindle behind the AIDS, HIV AIDS scare of the 1980s is finally being exposed. But it's not like the evidence wasn't there to begin with. The evidence was always there that HIV appears to be actually just a, a relatively harmless uh, retrovirus that doesn't really do much. And that AIDS in and of itself is overwhelmingly caused by lifestyle choices and or you know lifestyle factors, I should say. And that the AIDS that you find present in Africa is very different from the AIDS that you find present in the West. 
In Africa, AIDS seems to affect a very large segment of the population uh, across multiple groups, across income strata, across um, across geographical regions, across sexual orientations. Like it just seems to affect everybody. But in the West, AIDS is fundamentally a gay drug user's disease. That's the reality. Very, very, very few people catch AIDS who are not either homosexual, male homosexual specifically, or drug intravenous drug users, or both. The highest risk population by far of anybody in the West for catching AIDS is the homosexual, the male homosexual drug using population. And that's been true since the beginning of this disease. The drugs used by Fauci and others uh, to combat AIDS, AZT in particular, tend to be so toxic and so dangerous, they actually end up causing the symptoms that they're designed to fight. They are actually quite dangerous to the people who take these drugs. Now, I'm not saying that all AIDS drugs are useless, because that's not true, but many of them are highly toxic and very, very dangerous to people. So why are we continuing to push them? Why are we continuing to push these false narratives? We are getting now to the point where no longer can we trust in anything that governments are telling us. That was always the case. Okay, this is not new. This is not surprising in any way. We should never have trusted governments, especially in the West, to be honest with us about anything. But the bargain of the nation state has always been that the people give up some amount of power and authority to governments and to specialists and to bureaucrats because we trust them not to abuse that power. And for a couple of generations, that seemed to work pretty well because the bureaucrats in charge had a stake in the society that they were ruling over. But that is no longer the case. That is simply not true anymore. The bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., who are part of the deep state, have no ties, really, to the rest of the country. D.C. is its own kind of bubble. And anybody who's ever visited Washington, D.C. can tell you this. I've been there a few times. It's like you enter another world, and then the moment you go out of Fairfax County, Virginia, and into, like, the rest of America you realize just how insulated and stupid and inbred that bubble is. It's the same if you live in New York. It's the same if you live in San Francisco. It's the same if you live in Seattle. It's even the same if you live in Austin, Texas, right? They're all the same way. They all think the same way. They all, they all look at the world in the same lens. And then you actually go out of these bubbles and into real-world America, and you're like, wow. America looks nothing like what these people think it does. And one of the very few people pointing that out is Tucker Carlson on Fox News, which is, which is really, he's the only person on Fox worth listening to for that exact reason, because he actually tries to explain what the world looks like outside of these bubbles. But this is symptomatic of a very deep disease across the world, not just in the West, but across much of the world, not all of it. There are some governments out there where you can see that the people in charge are desperately trying to do good things for the people. Uh, they're just making a hash of it because, you know, government, right? Russia is a great example. Um, the Russian government is rife with corruption, rife with incompetence and stupidity and cronyism. And, you know, you, 
You name the sin, the Russian government is guilty of it. But the Russian government is fundamentally rooted in a compact with the people. And they try to execute on that compact. Not well, but they try to do it. And overall, actually, compared to the epic mismanagement that's present in the West, I would argue the Russian government is better at managing its country, especially its country's finances, than anybody else out there. Uh, all you have to do is look at the debt-to-GDP ratio of Russia and you realize that's the truth. What we're seeing in the West is a breakdown of the fundamental compact between the people and the government at a rate we've never seen before. And it's going to accelerate this year. And I wouldn't be surprised if by end of 2022, there will be a serious rupture, particularly in the United States. Because we know that the fake president is in deep, deep trouble. His incompetence, or it's not really his incompetence, he's not in charge of anything, but his, his, his fake administration's incompetence and venality and stupidity and corruption is becoming intolerable to the people, which will result in a, an attempt by the people to wrench back control in the midterms. I don't believe that's going to succeed very well because the Democrats know how to play the game now. They know how to rig elections. They know what it will take to fake an election. And they will do so with everything at their disposal to stop themselves from losing power. If that happens, and I do think it will happen in, in November, I would love to be wrong, but I do think it will happen, then the Democrats will face a very, very nasty choice. They are rapidly becoming an irrelevant party in the United States, by the way. They are... They are becoming the party of Karen, as Tucker himself pointed out not too long ago. They are becoming useless. Their, their sole constituency is basically uh, the middle-class Karen, the upper-middle-class Karen living in the gated suburb or in the big city. But everybody else is turning against them. They have lost contact or lost touch with the common man in America. Now take that and multiply it many times over across the entirety of the Western world. If you look at the UK, the Conservative Party is exactly the same. The Conservatives who won their seats in the, the Red Wall in the North are pleading with the government down South, saying, you've got to stop doing these stupid things which antagonize people up here. You're destroying the very power base that you built. In Germany, all of the major political parties are basically shutting down all of Germany's energy-generating capacity and going all-in on this suicidal, idiotic, green dream. In France, uh, a likely gatekeeper in the form of uh, an Algerian Jew is becoming the darling of the right wing. Now, he's, he's, he's there to keep people on the reservation. We know that. He's, been, he's being promoted for a good reason, uh, or at least good according to the elites. But the rest of the government is essentially in lockstep. They all believe the same things. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the socialist, uh, the, um, the whatever the party that, is, that uh, Macron is from, uh, or the center-right. They all basically believe in fundamentally the same thing. But they're completely disconnected from what the people want. Spain, same thing. Italy. Yeah, Italy, uh, the, the, the ITs can't form a decent government to save their lives. The only politician who seems to come along and care about what they're saying uh, was Salvini. And, you know, he's basically been uh, locked out of power by the machinations of the center-left elite. 
no matter where you look, the only exceptions seem to be Poland and Hungary in Europe right now. Uh, Japan, same thing. The, the, the LDP seems to have a complete hammerlock on power. Everywhere you look, you have these entrenched elites that have lost the trust of their people. And it's going to get much, much, much worse in 2022. I think I've rambled on for quite long enough. This has been over an hour of me just talking. But hopefully this has been enlightening and useful to, to you. Hopefully you gained something from it. Uh, and again, I really want to say thank you to everyone who has contributed, everyone who has written to me, everyone who has subscribed, everyone who has listened into my podcast. You guys make all this possible. I mean, you guys really make it possible for me to keep doing what I'm doing. And I think you get a lot of value out of it. I certainly get a lot of value out of it. But I'm really very pleased uh, with the fact that this site and this thing has been in existence for nine years now. And next year, I hope to be celebrating my 10th year, my 10th anniversary uh, of this process, of this work. And if so, then, uh, well, let's see. Maybe, you know what, I might, uh, depending on how uh, affiliate sales and, and other things go this year, uh, I might actually be able to buy myself a, a really nice bottle of scotch to celebrate because it's actually been quite a long time since I had a taste of really, really good scotch to celebrate anything. So we'll see how that goes. Anyway, uh, many thanks once again. Thank you very much for carrying on the fight. And believe me, it is a fight and we need to keep fighting. But many thanks for joining me. Very, very happy new year to all of you. Look forward to 2022. Fight with hope, faith, and love. Always keep moving forward. Always keep looking with optimism towards the future. And I will see you next time. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 91, The Year of Reckoning. And I am Didact, signing off.